Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. I'm Emily Mitchell-Field, and along with Don Stolfi-Salenhove, I am the co-chair of the Wetlands and Waterway Committee here at the BBA. And we are hosting this program with our fellow Energy and Environmental Law Section members, Aaron Lang and Tracy Triplett, who serve as the litigation co-chairs. Um, we're really excited about this program, and thank you all for joining us this afternoon. So we have two wonderful speakers who have worked really hard on a great presentation covering the Sackett decision, an overview of how we got to where we are, and how things are going to look moving forward in the wake of the decision and new regulations that have since come out. So today we have joining us Rebecca Lacey, um, who is a senior counsel in the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection Office of General Counsel, where she advises the Bureau of Water Resources. Rebecca has a master's in science in water resources from the University of Vermont and has worked as an environmental scientist before attending Harvard Law School. She has practiced environmental law in the private sector, representing a variety of clients, including many municipalities, until she joined DEP in 2021. And additionally, we have Seth Schofield, who is the senior appellate counsel for the Energy and Environmental Bureau of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, where he provides appellate advice and handles appeals and affirmative and defensive cases on behalf of the Commonwealth. And prior to joining the AG's office in 2006, Seth served as an assistant counsel in the U.S. Department of the Navy's Office of General Counsel. Seth is a graduate of Middlebury College and Vermont Law School. Seth is a fellow in the American College of Environmental Lawyers and a past co-chair of the BBA's Environmental Litigation Committee. So thank you, Rebecca and Seth, for both being here, and I will turn it over to you for your presentation. Great. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. Rebecca, do you want to go ahead and try to share the presentation? Yes. Does that work? Oh, it's loading. Okay. All right. It's up. Excellent. Thank you. Great. So thanks again, everyone, for being here today. Um, we hope that today's presentation will be both informative and maybe a little entertaining, um, but we're going to try to cover a lot of material um, Rebecca is going to start by covering some basics of um, sort of technical issues related to waterways to get everybody, um, provide everybody some context for the legal discussion that will follow. Once Rebecca gets through that material, I will um, go through some historical material about the Clean Water Act and the specific issue of um, whether wetlands come within its jurisdiction. And, and then have conclude with some discussion uh, about Sackett and its holding. Then I will hand it off to Rebecca, who will talk about some recent changes to the federal regulations and implications for Massachusetts. Thank you. All right, so I will get started. Um, so I'm gonna start with a visual to set the stage. <clears throat> this depicts a freshwater watershed um, which to remind everyone is um, an area of land in which all the streams and rainfall drain to a common outlet. So um, 
that would be down here in this one. Um, and I'm leaving out coastal water bodies, just focusing on what wetlands look like in a freshwater watershed here. <clears throat> this shows some of the different types of water bodies and wetlands that um, have been at issue in questions of Clean Water Act jurisdiction. So the most straightforward elements are this continue, continually flowing river into which flow continually or perennially flowing streams. Um, and for purposes of the Clean Water Act, it matters if the river might be susceptible to use in uh, transport of interstate or foreign commerce. Um, and then um, in addition, a watershed may have, uh, this shows, let's see, intermittent streams. Okay, this is an intermittent stream, um, which is just a stream that flows something less than continually. Um, and it also depicts ephemeral streams, which are streams that flow only after a rainfall. <clears throat> so much less often than an intermittent stream. Um, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, this also depicts different types of wetlands. Um, they're riparian wetlands bordering a couple of the streams um, or right here within the river. Um, then there are wetlands in, that are in this brown floodplain of the river. Um, they might be in different degrees of proximity to the river and you know, immediately bordering right on it or um, somewhat removed, but still within the floodplain. Um, so it might be covered by the river um, from time to time. Um, this wetland has a surface outlet, so it's connected directly um, through surface water to this um, perennial stream. Um, and then around, we have geographically isolated wetlands that aren't directly connected to any of these um, flowing water bodies, um, but you know still are hydrogel hydrologically significant in the watershed um, and are connected to perhaps groundwater and or surface water. So um, those are the types of water bodies that we will be talking about as we go forward. And now I will turn it back over to Seth. Thank you, Rebecca, that's helpful. Um, so we're, I'm going to walk through some of the key cases that have led up to Sackett. Um, on this slide, what, what we're showing are the um, the key players in the the Supreme Court's recent um, Supreme the Supreme Court's recent decision in Sackett. So uh, on uh, the left of your screen, you have the Sacketts. It's a, a couple uh, that bought a small uh, plot of land in Idaho, um, began filling the property, and was somewhat quickly. Um, um, uh, uh, confronted by EPA about the need to potentially receive a permit under the Clean Water Act. Uh, on the bottom right, you have Damian Schiff, who argued the Sackett case in the, the most recent case in the U.S. Supreme Court. He's uh, part of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, there are other folks at the Pacific Legal Foundation who have been very involved in uh, this case over the, the years, but he was the one most recently who argued the case on behalf of the Sacketts. And then down in the bottom left-hand corner, of course, you have EPA, um, the uh, third uh, party here. Uh, go ahead, Rebecca, next slide. So I, I hope, I think it's helpful and I found it helpful going back through some of this history, preparing for today's pre presentation to go back through some of the key cases over time and both look at what, what was the issue in each of those cases, what was the holding, um, and also looking for clues about uh, this, what folks are familiar with, the significant nexus test that Kennedy made quite famous in the Rapanos decision. So um, the first um, uh, 
key decision from the U.S. Supreme Court was United States v. Riverside Bayview Homes decision from 1985. The decision was um, uh, unanimous, not something that we see too frequently these days, given the um, makeup of the court. But the issue in that case was whether the Clean Water Act, together with certain Army Corps regulations, authorizes the Corps to require landowners to obtain permits from the Corps before discharging fill material into wetlands adjacent to navigable bodies of waters and their tributaries. Um, the court in that case, uh, the opinion was written by Justice White. The court said um, emphatically, yes, the Corps' ecological judgment about the relationship between waters and their adjacent wetlands provides an adequate basis for the legal judgment that adjacent wetlands may be defined as waters under the act. So for this court back um, in 1985, um, on a somewhat confusing record, uh, if you were to read the transcript for the for the case, uh, the oral argument had um, uh, didn't hesitate to conclude that wetlands both adjoining and also um, adjacent to or separated from covered waters were within the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. There's also an interesting footnote in the case. It's footnote nine where um, you can see the kind of beginnings of the significant nexus text um, uh, test. In that footnote, the court was responding to an argument that the Corps definition, which dates back to 1975, would be over-inclusive, essentially established the presumption that wetlands that were nearby covered waters were within the jurisdiction of the act and required a permit. The court in responding to that um, uh, th that that presumption had no difficulty concluding that it was reasonable for the court to conclude that in the majority of cases, meaning didn't always have to be right, adjacent wetlands have, uh, if the adjacent wetlands have significant effects on water quality in the aquatic system, its definition can stand. So I think one um, other important part of this case is that you, you really see that it's grounded in the congressional objective set forth in 33 U.S.C. 1251, um, which was uh, where Congress um, stated that the objective of this chapter is to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's water. The court uh, took that seriously, and the court... Um, uh, felt quite comfortable deferring to the expertise and technical judgment of the court. Next slide. So just a few other points about this. Again, the decision was unanimous. Um, uh, and I've done this for each of the cases. I've um, counted up the number of states that supported each side. I think it's also an interesting indicator of how things have changed over time. So in this particular case, no states participated in the case as a Miki supporting developer. On the other hand, 20 states participated in the case as amici supporting the core. Some of those supporting states and what they said in their brief might surprise you today. So we're gonna have a little pop quiz. I don't know if people can put answers in the chat or um, turn on their audio if you want. Uh, otherwise I'll provide the answer. But the first uh, uh, part of the quiz is to name this, it's for both, um, to name the state um, that wrote these paragraphs or sentences in the second instance. So the first paragraph, the state of blank has a vital interest in protecting the significant wetland resources found in blank state. Over 40% of the state's original wetlands have been destroyed by human activity. 
the loss has been a devast has had a devastating effect on X state's economy, causing increasing flooding of property and decreased catches and fisheries dependent upon wetlands. Although X state has enacted wetlands legislation, a strong federal regulatory program is necessary to enhance state wetlands protection. Now, if, does anybody, I'm not sure again, if, if you're able to do this, but um, somebody has a guess, go ahead and put it in the chat. So we have a guess in the Q&A, someone is guessing Louisiana. Close. Any other guesses? I can't see the Q&A for some reason, but are there no, any other guesses, Emily? No. Nope. Excuse me? Someone has Florida. guessed Florida. Oh, I see. Okay, it just popped up. Okay. Florida is correct. So um, I found this really interesting because it's something that, you know, with putting aside the specific uh, percentage of wetlands, it's something that um, we might write today on behalf of the Commonwealth in one of these cases. So the, the second sentence here is because these valuable wetlands are subject to development pressure, the state of, uh, of X supports a strong federal regulatory program of wetlands protection. Any guesses? And give people a few seconds. Emily, the answers seem to be showing up slow on my side. So if you see a response, let me know. I'm not seeing any responses yet. Uh, another guess for Florida. Nope, not Florida. Florida was the first one. I think the that Sean Walsh won that uh, the points there. They're not duplicative, not the same state. Okay, I'm just so we can we have a lot of material to cover. Texas, close, good guess. Okay, I'm gonna answer this one. So the second one was Alaska. Next slide, Rebecca. So and here's the list of, of states. Interestingly, and you probably won't, you definitely won't see this today. You'll see uh, on the left, the National Wildlife Federation supported a, submitted an amicus brief in support of the United States, which was joined by Alaska, Florida, and Michigan, which which wrote the brief. And then there was a separate multi-state brief that included 17 states. Next slide. So the next case, and we won't, I won't talk too much about this other than to highlight one specific piece, which is uh, Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County or SWANC as we call it sometimes. The issue in this case was whether the Clean Water Act confers, confers federal authority over an abandoned sand and gravel pit, which provides habitat for migratory, migratory birds, i.e. the migratory, migratory bird rule. So the answer, basically how that rule worked is if a isolated interstate um, water body was used by migratory birds, the chorus took the position that it was came within the scope of the act because it was within uh, the commerce power of the United States and Congress would have wanted them to protect those resources to protect the habitat for the migratory birds. Um, so that case, the court uh, said no, it was a 5-4 decision. Um, the migratory bird rule exceeds the authority granted to the Corps under Section 404A of the Clean Water Act. But what I wanted to highlight this, in this case um, was a passage from Chief Justice Rehnquist, who wrote the majority opinion, 
where uh, citing Riverside Bayview, he coined the significant nexus terminology. He indicated in the opinion it was, it was quote, it was the significant nexus between the wetlands and navigable waters that informed our reading of the act in Riverside Bayview homes. In this case, um, there were also some briefs submitted by states. Um, you had eight uh, states joining a brief drafted by California, and you had Alabama submitting its own brief opposing the Corps' position. Next slide. Rapanos, the famously fractured decision. Uh, so that's led to a lot of the, um, the complexities over the years since the decision. So the issue in Rapanos was whether wetlands which lie near ditches or man-made drains that eventually empty into traditional navigable waters constitute waters of the United States within the meaning of the act. So as I said, the decision was quite fractured. It was a, um, there was a opinion drafted by Scalia on behalf of four justices. There was a opinion drafted by Justice Kennedy. And then there was a dissent, which I believe was drafted by Justice Stevens based on the, um, um, the, the split amongst the justices, Justice Kennedy's opinion ended up being the controlling one. Um, and over time in the years past, uh, since um, Rapanos, majority of the federal courts of appeals have either adopted the Kennedy test or have applied both the Kennedy and Scalia's test. So what did they hold? So Scalia in his decision um, said that the channel adjacent to the wetland, so wetland, a wetland is covered if the channel adjacent to the wetland contains a water of the United States, i.e. a relatively permanent body of water connected to traditional interstate navigable waters, and the wetland has a continuous surface water surface connection with the water, making it difficult to determine where the water ends and the wetland begins. Kennedy disagreed with Scalia's narrow interpretation of the Clean Water Act and instead picked up where Riverside Bayview and Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist, left off in um, in the, the Swank decision and um, really um, set forth as the rule of the significant nexus test. So for for um, for Kennedy, Kennedy would uh, held that jurisdiction over wetlands depends upon the existence of a significant nexus between the wetlands and navigable waters, which is established if wetlands either alone or in combination with similarly situated lands in the region significantly affect the chemical, physical, and biological. Again, that's the language uh, from the statute that Congress said was the objective of, of the Clean Water Act of other covered waters more readily understood as navigable. So another interesting piece of this case is that both um, um, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, remarked on the potential need for a rulemaking, which could help spell out how the how the core and EPA would apply the significant nexus test. And the chief justice in the concurring uh, opinion also uh, spoke to the potential import of a rulemaking. In this case, he was um, somewhat critical of the agencies for not having moved forward with a rulemaking following the Swank decision. But um, interestingly, he did indicate that uh, essentially that if the if the agencies did had or or did move forward with a rulemaking, they would enjoy significant leeway uh, in developing what he described as some notion of an outer bound to the reach of their authority. 
Next slide. So in this, this case too, you will see there was broad support for the US position that the wetlands in question were covered by the Clean Water Act. You had 35 states uh, supporting the United States, supporting the agency's interpretation of the act, and you had two states opposing um, the interpretation expressed by the agencies in the case, Alaska and Utah. Alaska, um, since 1985, clearly had some new thoughts about how important wetlands were. Next slide. So what happens? It takes some time between Rapanos and the first rulemaking, but in 2015, the agencies um, uh, promulgate, propose, and then promulgate under the Obama administration what's known as the Clean Water Rule. Um, that rule is immediately challenged. There are challenges filed in 13 different district courts around the country, and there were 22 petitions filed in courts of appeals around the country, uh, also seeking judicial review of the rule. Um, the rule was preliminarily enjoined in 13 states. Um, before all of that litigation was able, able to conclude, um, the um, there was a change in administrations, as people know. The Trump administration came in and had very different views about the scope of the Clean Water, Water Act. They were very much um, uh, of the view that Scalia was correct in Rapanos and that Kennedy was wrong. Um, so the Trump administration undertook two rulemakings fairly early on in the administration. The first was a repeal rule, which was to repeal the Obama rule from 2015. And in its place, the old um, agency regulations would spring back into place. Um, the 20, and then in 2017, that same year, they also sought to suspend the, the Obama rule to try to um, uh, create some more space. Um, that suspension rule was challenged and vacated by two district courts in 2018. Ultimately, the appeals were dismissed in 2020 when uh, the Trump administration promulgated a substantive rule to revise the definition of waters of the United States. That was um, on April 21st, 2020. The challenges came fairly quickly. Um, that rule was challenged in multiple courts around the country. It was ultimately vacated by a district court after the agency's request for voluntary remand after another change in administrations. Um, so again, we're back to the pre-Obama rule lay of the land, which again covered both adjoining wetlands and adjacent wetlands separated by natural or artificial um, structures from um, covered waters. In 2023, the um, Biden administration publishes uh, a final rule revising again the waters of the United States. Um, that uh, rule was challenged in three district courts. The rule is currently enjoined in 27 states. I apologize for the typographical error. Um, yeah, but the cases have been stayed following the Supreme Court's decision in Sackett. Um, just recently, um, the courts and judges in two of those cases um, have issued orders allowing the plaintiffs in those cases to file amended complaints to file to challenge the September 2023 revised definition, which seeks to conform the rule regulations to the uh, Supreme Court's decision in Sackett. Next slide. 
So here we are, back to Sackett. So depending on how you count the votes, um, the decision was 9-0 in favor of abandoning, effectively abandoning the significant nexus test. From there, things got interesting. You have a five justice majority um, saying the significant nexus test is wrong. Um, and effectively, we agree with Scalia. And that's how we interpret the act. Um, then you have uh, four justice um, minority of two uh, concurring opinions, one by Justice Kagan, I believe, and then one by Justice Kavanaugh. I'm going to focus primarily on the one by Justice Kavanaugh um, because I think it's the most compelling. But um, so the issue here, just to sort of start at the beginning, uh, was whether the Ninth Circuit, which is where the Sackett's case was located on appeal, set forth the proper test for determining whether wetlands or waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act, i.e. is the significant nexus test the right test to apply? In Alito's opinion, he held the Clean Water Act extends to only those wetlands with a continuous surface connection to bodies that are waters of the United States. So essentially um, Scalia's tests so that they are indistinguishable, indistinguishable from those waters. The last part of the, his um, uh, in holding was uh, somewhat, um, uh, conflated or um, over-interpretation of some language from, at least in my opinion, of, of Scalia's opinion in, in, um, in um, uh, Rapanos, and may actually result in potentially a narrower holding than what Justice Scalia had proposed in his opinion in Rapanos. Um, the so Justice Kavanaugh then concurring in the judgment really took Justice Alito to task. Um, he agreed, first of all, with the decision not to adopt the significant nexus test, but then criticized the majority's interpretation as atextual. And the key piece of the uh, interpretive question was, what does the term adjacent mean as it appears in 33 USC 1344G, I believe, or 404G, um, where that term is used? Um, um, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, quite correctly uh, said the term adjacent is broader than adjoining. Um, and uh, Justice Alito, you really um, um, mixed up or um, applied too narrow of a construction of the term adjacent just based, based on the plain meaning of the term. Um, so he also warned that the majority's opinion will have a significant have significant repercussions for water quality and flood control throughout the United States. Um, and then he proposed his own rule, which was a wetland adjacent to or covered, um, a, a, a wetland is adjacent to a covered water, one, if the wetland is contiguous or bordering a covered water, so that's close to the Justice Alien's uh, test. Uh, or two, uh, um, the wetland is separated from a covered water only by a man-made dike or barrier, natural river, berm, beach, dune, or the like. So that part of the test was broader, um, but potentially narrower than Justice Kennedy's test. I think uh, one question to think about is what would Justice Kavanaugh's test or rule, if it had been adopted by a majority of the court, 
would it have actually resolved the uncertainty that has plagued the application of the act to wetlands uh, for decades now? Um, and I asked that question or posed that question because I think part two of his test, the wetlands separated um, from other covered waters by natural berms or man-made dikes, et cetera, um, that has always been the piece of um, um, the, the law that's made things complicated for the agencies and for landowners. The agencies, if that test had been employed, um, adopted would still have to figure out, you know, how, how do you determine if, determine if a uh, wetland is close enough? Um, and we likely might find ourselves back in a situation where um, we're looking at something like what Riverview Bayside said, we're looking at the effect of the, um, the fill or the discharge into the wetland on covered waters. Um, which Justice Kavanaugh has said the agencies can't look at. So it's possible that Justice Alito and the justices that joined his opinion um, saw that, but the, after the decades of litigation over this question decided um, wrongly in my opinion, um, or rightly uh, to, that it was time for this um, uh, uncertainty to end, and the way to do that was to lay down a clear uh, rule, um, although as Rebecca will talk about in a few minutes, there are still even some ambiguities in how that rule should be applied. Um, next, next slide. So here you have a very significant shift um, uh, in terms of states supporting and not supporting um, uh, the federal government and its interpretation of the act. On the side supporting EPA, you have um, a multi-state brief submitted by 19 states. Um, the brief was uh, led by New York. On the other hand, you have 27 states now, including some of those states that were um, supportive, uh, quite supportive of protecting wetlands back in Riverside Bayview, including Florida and um, Alaska now very strenuously opposing uh, the um, uh, EPA and the Corps' interpretation of the act. Next slide. So that brings us back to the Sacketts. So the Sacketts have effectively waged a 19-year battle with the agencies. Um, and I guess uh, tenacity pays off uh, in many cases, and they've secured a significant victory in really remaking um, at least how uh, many of us had understood the act to apply to wetlands for decades. So just putting that in context, the Sackett opinion upends an interpretation held for 45 years against eight presidential administrations, both Democratic and Republican, that extended jurisdiction to wetlands, both to adjoining covered wetlands, um, that both adjoined covered waters and that were separated by artificial or natural, a uh, natural barrier from covered waters. That was the law essentially for 45 years. There have been, um, you know, uh, there's been movement on either edge, but effectively that rule has been consistent over the year. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about the fact that the, the vehicle for securing this victory was uh, a disagreement that arose back in 2004 about whether filling a small lot in Idaho required a federal Clean Water Act. So 
I don't know. I, I if I was uh, uh, one of the folks at the agencies, I'd maybe asking myself was was it really worth it to pick this fight with this group? That doesn't mean that the fight wouldn't arise someplace else, but um, um, they picked a fight with a, a group that was um, with a with a with a couple that was uh, set on winning um, and committed to pursuing it over the long haul. Rebecca, I think that, yep, Thank turning it over to Rebecca. <laughs> so um, now that you've had the interesting drama, I'm going to go to the boring regulations, but hopefully this will be useful talking about um, what this is going to mean going forward. Um, and there are a lot of unanswered questions, but hopefully I can point you to some places that give a little bit of guidance. So um, I'm going to talk about, so EPA post SACIT uh, came out in September of this year um, with a revised uh, WOTUS regulation. Um, but to talk about that, I first need to go back and talk about the um, regulation that was in place that was modified by that September regulation. So um, in January, 2023 is, uh, was in the line of uh, rules that Seth put up. Um, EPA promulgated yet another WOTUS rule, and um, that rule set forth, so this was the Biden administration, it set forth a relatively broad federal jurisdiction, and based on the premise, which a lot of courts had adopted, that a water or wetland was jurisdictional if it met either test from Rapanos, so either the Scalia plurality test or the Kennedy concurrence test, the, um, concurrent, the Kennedy test being the significant nexus test. Um, the Scalia test having the key phrases relatively permanent and continuous surface connection. Um, as Seth noted, this January 2023 rule was immediately challenged, ended up in effect in only 23 states uh, that did include Massachusetts. Um, but nonetheless, this is the rule that EPA amended um, in coming up with its September rule implementing the SACIT decision. So this slide and the next slide summarize um, the key elements of the WOTUS jurisdiction that were set forth in the January 2023 rule. Um, they don't include all of the jurisdictional waters that that rule listed, but it's just some of the keys to focus on that were um, impacted, you know, the heart that was impacted strongly by, um, by SACIT. So, uh, waters that have always been, um, you know, <laughs> throughout um, this whole saga um, have continued to be jurisdictional are the traditional navigable waters. And um, those, um, so that includes the tidal and territorial seas, and it also includes waters that are, um, as I said, susceptible to, you know, they can be in their natural state or with some modification um, used for interstate or foreign commerce, and that speaks to the Commerce Clause um, and also sort of everyone's, I would say, um, agreement about um, the heart of what the Clean Water Act um, certainly covers. Um, the uh, January 2023 rule also um, held interstate waters, including interstate wetlands to be jurisdictional. Um, and then adopting both of the tests from Rapanos, it said that tributaries um, that are part of systems that eventually flow to these traditional navigable waters um, are jurisdictional either if they're relatively permanent or if they have a significant nexus to traditional navigable waters. Um, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about those, um, those phrases uh, down the road here. Um, moving on, wetlands um, are juris were jurisdictional in the January rule, um, either if they were adjacent to traditional navigable waters, um, that harkens back to Riverside Bayview, 
or if they were adjacent to relatively permanent waters and had a continuous surface connection to those waters, the Scalia tests, or the Kennedy test, um, if the tributaries, wetlands adjacent to tributaries, as long as the tributaries have a significant nexus to navigable waters and the wetlands had a significant nexus to the tributaries. Um, but in as Seth noted, um, adjacent, the definition of adjacent um, basically had stayed, um, you know, unchanging um, throughout these various changes of the, the various vicissitudes of these rules. And um, so in January 2023, it had kind of the, um, de you know, the longstanding definition that adjacent meant bordering continuous, contiguous or neighboring, including if separated by dikes, berms, dunes, etc. Bordering continuous, contiguous or neighboring to um, traditionally to, sorry, to waters of the United States. Um, so, okay. Um, okay, so then after Sackett, um, EPA and the Corps um, came out very quickly, just within three months um, with a rule implementing this decision um, called the Revised Definition of Waters of the United States um, Conforming Rule. Um, and the agencies issued this directly as a final rule uh, bypassing the steps of publish the typical steps of publishing a proposed rule and taking comments, responding to the comments. Their rationale was that this is allowed under, it's provided for in certain circumstances under the Administrative Procedure Act, and that they needed to move quickly to bring the regulations into alignment with what was currently the law of land after the Sackett decision. Um, this September 2023 rule, um, what it essentially did was just kind of pretty mechanically went through the January rule and just um, eliminated all of the um, the parts of that rule that said that a water that passed the um, significant nexus test was jurisdictional um, and it also eliminated interstate wetlands um, and some other um, waters that I just haven't included in my list. Um, so you can see, and EPA actually helpfully put a red line like this, but including the entire regulation um, and all of the words and the changes, um, that's up on their website. So that's very helpful to refer to. It's not part of the official um, September rule, but it's a you know unofficial um, guidance that's very helpful. Um, so tributaries are now jurisdictional if they're parts of systems that flow to traditionally navigable waters only if they're relatively permanent. You can't use the significant nexus test. Um, Wetlands are now jurisdictional if they're either adjacent to traditional navigable waters or they pass the Scalia test, um, that they're adjacent to relatively permanent waters and have a continuous surface connection to those waters. Now, the key, though, is that adjacent now has the definition of adjacent um, per the second decision um, has been radically changed instead of being bordering contiguous or neighboring, um, including if separated by dikes, berms, or dunes, um, a adjacent just means uh, that a wetland has a continuous surface connection to a water body. So therefore, so um, so now, um, so uh, the EPA acknowledged in its preamble to this rule that this now, you know, you really don't need this additional phrase, continuous surface connection, because now wetlands are only adjacent if they have a continuous surface connection. They can't be adjacent if they, you know, are separated by anything. Um, but 
you know, they basically said, we're just going through mechanically and uh, making these changes. So we're just going to leave that in because the decision has not changed that. So um, that is a little quirk in the rule. <laughs> um, so, um, and so the, so the September 2023 rule, the preamble is extremely short. EPA gives no guidance about, um, you know, how it's implementing these changes, um, how to interpret this rule, you know, how, how to interpret SACIT. So um, we are just left with these crossouts and uh, we have to, you know, we're gonna move on from here. Um, so some of the, un so the key unanswered questions, um, first, what does relatively permanent mean? So, you know, SACIT doesn't provide guidance about that. Um, but for the January 20, the preamble to the January 2023 rule um, is very extensive and provided a lot of interpretive detail about each of the key phrases. You know, it's embracing both of these two tests from Rapanos. And so it provides a lot of guidance about how to implement each of those two tests. Although I have to say the guidance um, provided for quite a lot of case by case scientific um judgment. So it was uh, not necessarily going to be super crystal clear to implement, but it does, um, or and it won't be going forward, but it does provide um, some guidance that we can look to. Um, so in the January 2023 rule, it's talking about the in the preamble, talking about the meaning of relatively permanent. Um, it said that um, ephemeral strain, it, you know, um, gave the guidance that ephemeral streams, which I had um, said early on, flow only in direct response to precipitation, that those are clearly not relatively permanent. Um, a continuously flowing stream, you know, that has water in it 365 days a year, it said, you know, clearly that is relatively permanent. Um, intermittent streams, which are in between those two um, ends of the spectrum, um, the the preamble basically says it depends. And as I said, this is one of the instances in which um, it provides a lot of leeway for scientific judgment. And also, you know, it makes the point that um, intermittent streams, which could be considered relatively permanent, have very different characteristics in the different um, geographies, you know, across the country, you know, characteristics of streams in like the Southwest Desert region, region are going to be very um, different from stream characteristics in New England and what it makes, I mean, according, you know, according to EPA in uh, January 2023, it made, you know, it would make sense to um, use different judgment about what to, what would properly be considered a relatively permanent stream within that geography. So, so it gives us some guidance uh, that preamble does, um, but you know, not a ton, but it does at least give um, EPA's interpretation, what EPA's interpretation, at least at that time, was of the phrase relatively permanent. Um, one um, interesting question is whether, so relatively permanent is talking about, you know, streams. Um, an interesting question is whether this change in jurisdiction in streams, which is where, um, you know, surface water discharges are discharged to, um, you know, treatment plants and so forth. Um, and this, so this will affect NIMPTI's purpose. So the question is whether this change in jurisdiction over flowing waters is going to affect um, NIMPTI's permitting. And I want to point you to, I mean, it's 
a very open question, but I do want to note that um, Scalia's opinion in Rapanos did say, you know, um, some of the uh, briefs had um, expressed a concern that if you, you know, narrowed um, WOTUS jurisdiction, then you could have someone, you know, have a huge discharge of some pollutants, uh, you know, into an upstream water that was, you know, now no longer considered to be jurisdictional, um, and that could pollute, you know, that could flow downstream and pollute um, all the rest of the waters that we're clearly trying to protect. Um, and so Scalia said, no, 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 you know, you don't have to have that concern. He said the act does not forbid the addition of any pollutant directly to navigable waters from any point source, but rather the addition of any pollutant to navigable waters. Um, and so he said, thus, from the time of the Clean Water Act's enactment, lower courts have held that the discharge from in, into intermittent channels of any pollutant that naturally washes downstream likely violates Section 1311A, even if the pollutants discharged from the point source do not emit directly into covered waters, but pass through conveyances in between. Um, I'm not, I just point you to that language that it was in that decision. I'm not, I think um, this question gets very complicated. There's um, NIPTI's point source discharges that aren't stormwaters. There's NIPTI's discharges that are stormwater, which get extremely complicated. So I think this question um, has a lot of um, aspects and, you know, we're going to need a lot of guidance from EPA about how they are going to interpret um, the, any changes to NIPTI's jurisdiction. Um, then, um, so I'll have to try to speed up here. Um, the next question is what continuous surface connection means. And I'll just briefly note that um, the January 2023 preamble um, specifically said that continuous surface connection could include um, a hydrological connection that um, took place between um, within a ditch pipe or culvert between a wetland and the, the WOTUS that it flowed into. Um, but the um, Alito's language in Sackett kind of puts together language from a, the word indistinguishable from one place in Scalia's opinion in Rapanos and kind of um, marries that with another phrase from elsewhere in Rapanos to focus more on the word indistinguishable that the um, continuous surface connection means that the wetland has to be indistinguishable from uh, the water of the United States. And I think people, some commentators are looking at that and saying that's uh, perhaps a bit of a new phrase and maybe that, um, you know, EPA can no longer uh, justify that that could include what, you know, waters that are wetlands that are connected through a dip, ditch pipe or culvert. So that's definitely another um, area that we're, you know, waiting for some guidance from EPA on or litigation. <laughs> I think as I said, the litigation is already uh started um, and I think there's going to probably be a lot more. Um, so I won't, I was going to sort of go over, um, you know, where we think we stand here, but I'll, I'll leave you to uh, look at the, make that interpretation yourselves based on uh, everything that we've said. Um, so I'll move on to um, implications for Massachusetts. Um, the SACA decision and then the subsequent September 2023 EPA and CORE rule um, have implications 
for environmental protection in Massachusetts related to the Federal Clean Water Act, which I'll describe in this slide, but then I'll go on in the following slides to describe some of the state and local protections that are unaffected by these federal changes and which are important to distinguish. Um, so these three key implications. Um, the first is a reduction in that this um, reduction in federal jurisdiction is now going to result, you know, there's a reduction in federal protection of upstream out-of-state water bodies and interstate wetlands um, that, you know, certainly could result in increased pollution entering Massachusetts waters and something that Massachusetts just has no control over. Um, Second, some type of some types of wetlands will no longer be subject to the jurisdiction of the Army Corps under Clean Water Act Section 404 uh, for discharges of dredged and fill material. And where no federal permit is required, MassDEP won't have the opportunity any longer to issue Clean Water Act Section 401 water quality certifications. And so those wetlands will no longer be subject to federal protection, including what had been federally enforceable state conditions um, that Massachusetts was able to include. Um, but again, I'll discuss the state and local laws the wetlands are protected by in Massachusetts. And um, then, as I said, it's really not clear um, whether or not the revision to the definition of waters of the United States will result in a significant reduction in jurisdiction for federal NIFTES permitting, um, but MassDEP administers a parallel surface water discharge permitting program under state law, and so I will discuss that. Um, so the Massachusetts Wetlands Protection Act um, uh, protects um, a number of water bodies and, and wetlands and associated areas um, list. This is the list from the statute. Um, it's a little complicated <laughs> because it's any of these areas that border on any of these types of water bodies um, or any land that's under these water bodies or this other land subject to tidal action, coastal storm flowage or flooding. So these are um, land subject to coastal storm flowage, uh, bordering land subject to flooding and isolated land subject to flooding um, and riverfront area. Those are all, so riverfront area is area 200 feet on either side of a perennial river or stream um, and bordering land subject to flooding and isolated land subject to flooding um, and land subject to coastal storm flowage are all um, not necessarily land that had been within um, federal jurisdiction um, even before Sackett. So our Wetlands Protection Act is really quite comprehensive. Um, and in, in addition to this um, language in the statute, the regulations also protect buffer zones um, from if there's from pollution or alteration within the buffer zones that would have an effect on the the statutorily protected resource area. Um, I'll note that this doesn't include um, isolated vegetated wetlands. If they're not isolated land subject to flooding, they don't have a protection in the statute. Vernal pools are only protected if they're within a protected resource area. Um, intermittent streams, the regulations um, uh, don't protect intermittent streams that are upgradient of wetlands. And then there are also some exempted activities such as utility maintenance. Um, but in addition to our state act, um, many, many Massachusetts, more than half of Massachusetts municipalities have 
local wetlands bylaws and ordinances, which um, courts have held that if those are, or the SJC has held that um, if your bylaw ordinance and your accompanying regulations are more stringent than the state act and regulations, um, they are not preempted by the state act and regulations. So these um, municipal um, bylaws and ordinances um, greatly expand the protection of wetlands in um, many areas. Another and then the other um, key, very comprehensive, jurisdictionally comprehensive statute that Massachusetts has is the Massachusetts Clean Waters Act, um, and which is somewhat similar to uh, the federal Clean Water Act, although um, certainly not um, maybe similar in its sort of general purpose, but um, it has it's quite different in many details. One difference being the definition of the covered waters, waters and waters of the Commonwealth, which as you can see here is, uh, has quite a comprehensive list. Um, and this list is without limitation. So it's very jurisdictionally broad, certainly much more jurisdictionally broad than where we're left with, where we are left after Sackett. So, um, and just very briefly, I'll note that um, we have, um, you know, this provides um, complete jurisdiction of um, you know, potential surface water discharges into any of these waters, um, well, and discharges into groundwaters. Um, and there's a comprehensive surface water permitting program in 314 CMR3 um, that is, and so um, all, almost all NIPTES, I think stormwater is a little more ambiguous, but, um, but, uh, or the details are a little more complicated, um, but certainly any standard surface water discharge that is covered under, that has a NIPTES permit will also have a completely separate um, and jurisdictionally completely separate uh, mass DEP discharge permit. So um, we do, the state does have um, quite comprehensive jurisdiction and environmental protection even, um, even post Sackett. And so, DEP is looking at all the implications of the Sackett decision of this new federal definition of WOTUS, um, paying attention to, you know, the guidance that EPA and the Corps are hopefully starting to come out with and reviewing our options moving forward, um, also keeping an eye on the litigation that's happening. So uh, stay tuned is all I can say. Thank you, Rebecca. I just wanted to add one comment to what Rebecca's uh, just said in terms of implications for Massachusetts. I think as Rebecca described, we have Massachusetts has a um, very robust uh, regulatory system in place to protect our wetlands and waterways from pollution and filling and dredging, et cetera. But the one thing that um, we can't very effectively protect ourselves from, and it's a point that we made consistently in the briefing and all of that litigation that I was describing earlier in terms of the rulemakings um, is out of state pollution. Um, it's, it has not, I think, historically, and I don't have uh, data to back this up, necessarily been um, a very significant issue for Massachusetts. But uh, waters, for example, from New Hampshire do flow into Massachusetts. So pollution and um, uh, pollutants that are discharged in New Hampshire do have a way of getting into Massachusetts. It hasn't historically been um, uh, a, a situation, a very big or important situation for us because of the important federal baseline that established um, a rule across the country that required permits for work in 
uh, wetlands that were adjacent to tributaries and navigable waters that might flow into Massachusetts. But I do want to note that um, this could potentially become an issue for us because, um, and I hope that it won't, but it could. Uh, New Hampshire, the governor of New Hampshire, um, Governor Sununu, back in 2017, submitted a comment letter to EPA. Um, uh, at the time, it was uh, um, um, uh, Scott Pruitt, um, basically uh, praising the Scalia decision, asking the EPA at the time to adopt that rule. And part of the rationale expressed in the letter was that it would make it easier for businesses to develop in New Hampshire because it would cost less and there would be fewer permitting requirements for developers and businesses wanting to um, engage in construction along waterways uh, that were previously previously would have required a permit. And New Hampshire's position on this issue hasn't changed. Um, New Hampshire is one of the plaintiffs in the cases this one's filed in North Dakota, um, challenging the 20 to January 2023 rule. And that I believe is one of the cases where the stay is about to be lifted for um, amended complaint to be filed to challenge the um, September rule. So I did wanna um, mention that again, we hope that it won't be a significant issue, but it is a concern that um, Massachusetts through the attorney general's office and our state partners in these litigation litigation across the country over the years has raised as, as one of the reasons why an important uh, uh, um, um, uh, interpretation of the act that sets a um, strong federal baseline is important. Thank you both so much. I know we're sort of right at the hour here. If anyone has any quick questions and Rebecca and Seth, you can stick around to answer them. Um, understanding you might have to hop off, feel free to put them in the chat, but thank you both so much. The depth of both of your knowledge on this topic is so impressive and, and that was a really great presentation. Thank you, Emily. I'm I'm happy to wait for a couple minutes to see if there are any questions. Um, I'm not seeing any quite yet. We could give people maybe one more minute if they're typing. Um, I could ask one question just to give people a second. If you both mentioned litigation upcoming, um, already ongoing, is there an area you think we're going to see a lot of activity? Um, for either challenges to the rule or specific um, case litigation over jurisdictional waters and wetlands. I'll jump in and start. Um, I think that the question of um, what of the meaning of continuous surface connection is going to be litigated because I, um, I think there's just a lot of room for interpretation left there and um, there's a lot of incentive to make arguments kind of on either <laughs> on either end of the spectrum of interpretation. So um, I'm also actually curious to actually um, the EPA and the core have just um, let or at least EPA I think has just let states know there's going to be a um, discussion. So it sounds like they might be rolling out some guidance. It'll be interesting to see if they perhaps um, take the initiative in, you know, defining that term continuous surface connection. Um, 
but I, even if they do, I think it'll probably be litigated. So that's certainly something I'm going to be looking for. I agree that that's one area that's likely to be um, litigated and become uh, an area of dispute between the regulators and landowners. Um, for example, I, I, and maybe others have an opinion about this, but I'm, I'm not, at least it's not completely clear to me, does continuous surface water connection mean that there needs to be um, essentially a, uh, some kind of formed uh, something like a form stream bed that connects the wetland to um, the tributary or navigable water to meet that test. Um, uh, does it matter if there's water running through it throughout the year? How often does water have to run throughout through it um, throughout the year, the year for it to qualify? Um, we know that for tributaries that it's relatively permanent. So one would think that the surface connection doesn't have to be a continuous surface water flow, but I think uh, to be continued on that issue. We've had a that, question oh. come in that Rebecca, you sort of touched on and said this is this will remain to be seen and, and maybe EPA needs to weigh in, but do you anticipate reduced NIFTI's permitting jurisdiction for discharges in wholly intrastate waters? Um, I don't even want to speculate. I think that is like completely TBD. <laughs> I agree. And I cut you off, Seth. Is there something, is there a final thought you would like to leave us with? Oh, I was going to say, and, I, and I, I, I'm sorry that I am not as familiar with the recent complaints that have been filed, but one of the issues that came up um, in some of the cases challenging the Obama rule was um, challenge to interstate waters, um, ponds or lakes that cross state lines. Um, and there was an argument made that that also was beyond the scope of um, the Clean Water Act. I do not know um, if any of the plaintiffs in the current challenges have raised that issue, but at least one court, um, I think it was, let's see, um, it was the United States District Court for the Southern District of Georgia actually held that that um, provision in the regulation, old regulations, was invalid as well. So I, that's another issue to keep an eye out for. Well, thank you both so much. This has been a great presentation and a great discussion, and we appreciate your time.